Life podcast. We truly hope you'll be inspired and challenged today. Now, let's dive into this message with the family at Pleasant Ridge. Good morning. A little bit of technical difficulty there, but um, I'm going to start off. I'm a little bit tense here, so I'm going to start off, and I'm going to need some help. Jackson, are you back there? You think you can come up and help me? You want to come up here and help me? Are you being shy? Jackson is shy. Come on up here. I need some help. <laughs> oh, you're, you're not in trouble. Do you know how to use one of these? Hey, Jack. Do you know how to, how to use one of these? I've got a knock-knock joke for you. Do you like knock-knock jokes? Are you sure? Knock-knock. You got you to make it so everybody can hear you. Knock-knock. I don't know. Knock-knock. Who's there? Gorilla. Who? That's not how a knock-knock joke goes. It's Gorilla. Who? Gorilla who? Gorilla, yes. Gorilla me, me a hot dog, won't you? What? Yeah. <laughs> okay. But I need your help. Here, you can hold this, because I'm going to ask you some questions. I've got a picture to show you. Ah, oh, let's see. Oops, went a little too far there. There you go. You see that picture up there? Isn't that a silly picture? What do you see up there? Dragonflies. Dragonflies? Are those dragonflies? That's what my dad said. <laughs> do you believe everything your dad says? Not really. Not really. What does it look like to you? Maybe some moths? Does it look like moths to you? What's down at the bottom down there? What is that? It's a butter knife with butter on a plate with wings. The butterfly. Can you see the butterfly down there? Oh, the butterfly. <laughs> and what's this guy here up in front? He's a moth, right? Uh, he looks more bigger like a dragonfly. dragonfly I think the dragon, other dragon ones are... The dragon has like big long, long wings, but, but he's supposed to be a moth. But the other ones look more like moths. Yeah, well, he's a big chief moth. Oh. What's he wearing? My dad says he's wearing a tie. He's wearing a tie. So, you know what? We call him one tie moth. One tie moth? Yeah, one tie moth. Now, this is, this is uh, something of what we're going to be studying a little bit about. Oh. So, that's one tie moth, and he's got a tie on. Well, I colored a picture of that a you, few minutes ago. You did? All right. Where'd you find that picture? Um, Mom got it. And Mom got it. It's out, out in the foyer, wasn't it? Probably. And there's some crayon, there's some pencils there. If anybody yeah, else wants to do pencils. it, yeah. So anyway, there's one time off there. Now this is kind of funny. We're going to be studying the book of First Timothy. So that's like one time offy. So that's help you help you remember that we're studying First Timothy. So. But he's got all these other guys hanging out with him, and he's got this, they've got this book there, and you can't really see it here, but that is 
a manual on how to lead insects. Ah. So this picture is kind of to help us remember that the book of 1 Timothy is a manual on leadership. We're going to be studying that the first Sunday of every month for a little while. We'll see how long it takes, but we're going to be studying the book of 1 Timothy. So every time you hear 1 Timothy, you can remember this picture, and there's a leader there, and he's leading a bunch of other moths, and he's got a leadership manual there. Well, thank you very much for your help. That's a funny picture, isn't it? A little. Thank you, bud. Good job. Okay, I'm a little more relaxed, but I'll get uptight real quick here. So, um, so as as you heard, we're going to be studying the book of First Timothy, and uh, this is just a funny little picture that we had. Uh, we were t- teaching some kids years ago on on pictures and remembering the books of the Bible. So, um, the elders have decided to share in teaching of the first in the first Sunday of the month. So we will be rotating who's teaching on these days. So why are we doing this? Uh, why, why are the elders sharing on the, in the responsibility of teaching? Well, eldership is a shared responsibility. And this is a practical demonstration of that. We see this every time elders are mentioned in the Bible, that there's more than one. So whenever somebody's commenting, whenever um, Paul is talking about the elders, it's Elders, plural. It's a plurality of elders when he's talking to a church. So there's always more than one. So it's a shared responsibility. Elders should also be able to teach and are expected to. In 1 Timothy 3.2, as well as Titus 1.9 and other passages, uh, we see that they are supposed to be apt to teach. So we are going to practice on a regular basis. We're not all gifted in teaching, but it gives each of us an opportunity to teach and share what we've been learning. And uh, each of us will see different things, and it will let us share what God reveals to us through our own lens. It lets us, as elders, to learn from each other as well. And elders, as well as all Christians, and uh, Jerry uh, touched on this earlier, we are to be unified. Psalms 133, 1 and 2, and Ephesians 4, Three and other passages talk about this, even though we might not always agree. This is an opportunity to build that unity as we work together teaching God's Word. So why are we starting out with 1 Timothy, specifically? Well, first of all, because I like 1 Timothy. Um, I've learned a lot from studying and teaching it, and then when I offered 1 Timothy up as an option, it was agreed upon. Um, also, 1 Timothy is a letter that Paul wrote to Timothy on how the leadership and church should operate to grow in maturity for us as leaders and as a church body. We need to know how we need to lead and be led and what is ex- expected of each other. 1 Timothy is very focused on that. So as we start, and as I read through this passage that I'll be presenting, uh, many ideas came up, but I'd like to uh, share this as a takeaway. Because Christ has changed our hearts, we must be alert and in love, teaching the truth of God's Word. I'm excited to start this journey, and what better way to start this book off than to talk about the place and people. But first, before we start, let's pray. 
Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for this opportunity that uh, you've given me. And Lord, help me as I uh, present your word and what I've learned. And help us to listen and learn um, from what you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, so if you haven't already opened your Bibles to 1 Timothy, let's turn there and start in chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So 1 Timothy starts off with Paul's credentials. As a letter to Timothy, a friend and collaborator, do you think that Paul needed to tell Timothy who he was? Probably not. It seems he may have done this because this letter was to be read to all the churches in Ephesus. He opens with Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. An apostle is a delegate, delegate, a messenger, an ambassador. Paul points out in 2 Corinthians 5.20 that we are all ambassadors as well. Now being an ambassador would then require someone to commission him. Uh, here Paul states that Jesus Christ was the one he represented as an apostle. This is not a position that he bestowed upon himself. We see that Christ himself commissioned Paul. Paul encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, and Jesus appeared to Paul, blinding him, and told him, I have prepared to you, I have prepared to you for this, I have prepared you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. After this happened, Jesus spoke to Ananias, telling him he must meet Paul in Damascus and to put hands on Paul so that he could regain his sight. Ananias was fearful of Paul, and we'll see that why in a moment. But Jesus told him in Acts 9.15, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. Clearly, Paul was appointed by God. Paul knew what his position with knew his position with God, and he claims that God is his savior. But what is he needing saved from? We are all sinners. Romans 3:23 says, "For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God." And as Roman, and Romans 6.23 says the, that the result is eternal death and separation from God. Isaiah 59.2 says that our sin has separated us from God. And Paul was not exempt from that. Paul was actively against Jesus and was persecuting the church. 
His activism probably started about the time of Stephen's stoning in Acts chapter 7. And uh, Paul says this of himself in Acts 26. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Steeped in the tradition of the Jews, Paul was very well educated as he shares in Acts 22 and Philippians 3. But he was far from God. Paul did not even know he needed saved. He was on his way to Damascus to capture Christians. But a miracle happened on the way. And Jesus appeared to Paul, or Saul, which is his Jewish name, and changing his heart and life, saving Paul. So back to 1 Timothy. Paul says that there's hope in Jesus Christ. Jesus changed his life. Our hope is a confidence in the fulfillment of God's promises. It is not like hoping that we will have a pizza for dinner or lunch, hoping or hoping that I'll get a raise. This hope is in God's promises that have been, been and will be fulfilled through Jesus Christ. This letter is to Timothy. Who is Timothy? He lived in Lystra with his mother and grandmother, who were Jewish, and his father was Greek. And uh, we don't know what happened to his father, but his grandmother and mother were very much involved in his life. Timothy may have first heard of Paul during Paul's first missionary journey with Barnabas, and they visited Lystra. It's not clear when Timothy, his mom, and his grandmother became Christians. But it seems Timothy may have become a Christian when Paul traveled through Lystra the first time. In our passage, Paul calls Timothy my true child in the faith. That seems to indicate that Paul may have been involved in Timothy coming to Christ. Even if it was not the case, by the time Paul was on his secondary, second missionary journey with Silas, and they visited Lystra, Timothy was much involved in the church. Acts 16.2 says that he was very well spoken of the church. Oh, says that he was very well spoken of by the church in Lystra. It was, was at this point that Paul invited Timothy to accompany him on his journey. Timothy was probably somewhere between the ages of 16 and 22 at this time. We see that Paul spent a lot of time with Timothy and was his spiritual father. Paul invited Timothy to experience life with him on a full-time basis. Paul had taken Christ's commission of Matthew 28, 19, and 20 to heart. He started something on his first missionary journey in Lystra that affected Timothy and continued to be involved in Timothy's life. Though he traveled with Paul, he became Paul's right-hand man. But Paul then sent him out on missions as Paul's representative. Philippians 2, 19-23 says this of Timothy, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon 
so that I too may be cheered by the news of you. For I have no one like him who, was, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. Now as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. So Timothy was committed and passionate about the gospel and Paul's true child in the faith. Paul discipled Timothy to take on the responsibilities that God was putting before them. So during Paul's third missionary journey, Paul and several others, including Timothy, ended up in the city of Ephesus for a couple of years. About eight to ten years later, when Timothy was in his early to mid-30s, Paul sent him to Ephesus during a fourth missionary journey. Ephesus was a very large city in Asia Minor, located near the western coast of present-day Turkey. It became a political, religious, and commercial center. A large part of the community life was centered around the temple of Artemis, and she was the goddess of the hunt, the wilderness, wild animals, the moon, and also of chastity. So, and then Ephesus' pinnacle was during the first and second century, and this was when Timothy was there. It was probably the fourth largest city in the world at that time with a quarter of a million people. So Timothy has been sent out to one of the largest metropolitan areas in the known world and ministering there as, an, as, a, as Paul's representative and a representative of Jesus Christ. So... After Paul had indicated who the letter was to, he opens with a blessing. Grace, mercy, and peace. These are not from Paul. They are divine. Paul could not give these blessings, but only God the Father and Jesus Christ. When Paul used the word Lord, he's confirming that Christ is their master and supreme authority. This blessing is distinctly for Christ followers. Generally, if you meet someone in the street or neighbor, you would not say grace, mercy, and peace. But listening to some of the greetings that we have for each other, it might not be said so succinctly, but you might hear something along the lines of health, happiness, and, and prosperity, or these days it might be health, safety, and security, or say, stay safe, or live long and prosper. Our founding fathers may have said something our founding fathers may have said something along the lines of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So, what makes a greeting of grace, mercy, and peace so special to a believer? Let's look at these words. Grace is referring to God's unmerited favor and kindness. Interestingly, Paul takes a lot, talks a lot about this grace in a letter to the churches in Ephesus that he had written about five years earlier. In Ephesians 2... 4 through 9, he says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And rising, up, and rising us up with him and seating, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. For by, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, 
not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Only God can give us true grace. The second word in this blessing is mercy, which we also see in the Ephesians passage. And an interesting note on this is that depending on the Greek manuscripts, Timothy is the only person or only, only uh, the first and second Timothy are the only books that Paul wrote that has this word in it. However, in some manuscripts, it appears uh, in the book to Titus as well. But uh, I thought that was an interesting note. Um, so I, I wrote a question here. Why does Timothy need mercy, whereas people Paul writes in other letters do not? I don't know. Um, so that's something I'm going to ask him, ask Paul about. So because of God's mercy, we are given this grace. Mercy is God's compassion to us, his tenderness of heart that overlooks our wrongs that we have done towards him. As we saw earlier, we are all sinners. And because of that, we are eternally separated from God. But Titus 3, 4 through 6 tells us that God, our Savior, saved us because of his mercy. And it says this, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on, on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The last word in this blessing is peace, which is freedom from disturbance or agitation and a harmony between parties or reconciliation that produces harmony. As a disciple of Christ, because of God's grace and mercy, we are rec reconciled with God. We have that peace with God. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that is in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. God made his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So we are also, we are also to have peace with each other. Romans 12, 18 tells us, as far as it depends on us, live in peace with everyone. So after his greeting, Paul then moves to commissioning Timothy. Timothy, being the right-hand man of Paul, was sent to Ephesus to serve the churches there. Ephesus was not a small city, and there's definitely more than one body of believers meeting together there. Paul passionately urges Timothy to stay in Ephesus, Urge could be translated to char as charge and is used with a military nuance, almost like a commanding officer was giving strict orders, but, pol but politely asking. So if you can get that figured out, how that works. But Paul seems to be stressing the seriousness of this issue coming up. Also, Timothy had already been serving here in Ephesus for a while. Paul probably knew that Timothy needs some urging to keep on going. So why does Timothy have to stay? Verse 3 continues with Paul telling Timothy to charge or command some people not to teach different or other doctrine 
um, deviating from the truth. So what is true doctrine? It's principles or truths taught in Scripture and by Christ. During his previous trip to uh, Ephesus, um, he was stayed there for two to three years, so he probably had a, was able to spend a good amount of time in the church giving them instruction based upon the Old Testament and what Jesus Christ taught. So false doctrine was already moving into the church gatherings in Ephesus. And Paul had just been there just a few years earlier. So later in chapter 4, Paul will warn that some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. Jesus himself warns, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so, that, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. That's in Matthew 24, 24. So in his second letter to Timothy, in chapter 4, starting verse 3, Paul provides some insight on how this will look, this could look. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teachings, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. In verse 4 of 1 Timothy 1, we see two more things that Timothy is to command against. Being distracted and focused on myths and genealogies. These fed into the, uh, these fed into the development of different or false doctrines. So Paul was thinking about the two different communities in Ephesus that were coming together within the church. Um, the first was uh, the Greek culture that grew up with the myths of their paganism. The other group was the, the large group of Jews that were there. And... Uh, they, they spend a lot of time looking at their ancestry, checking out the genealogies to see how important they were in the life of, of the Jews and in, in their community. So bits and pieces of their old beliefs would easily be added in the teaching of the church, resulting in different doctrines that deviated from the truth. These things led to speculations and discussions and disputes and arguments. Often the speculating and questions ended up on the side of the culture. So why? Because our first source of truth is generally not in the word of God. It is what we put in our hearts and lives and we are easily distracted. We see this in our churches today. A cultural idea comes in and is added to the operation of church. Another thing is added or permitted, then another, and quickly the church is not teaching the gospel of God and permitting sin within leadership which trickles down throughout the body. We see that this is distracting from stewardship from God. What is this stewardship? Stewardship is the management, oversight, administration of someone else's property. This says here that these people were given something by God to take care of. What is it? It was the advancement of the gospel, truth and true doctrine that is talked about in verse 3 and also in, later in verse 11. Stewarding well what God has given is very important. And as we remember, Jesus gave a parable in Matthew 25 where a master hands out money to several of his servants. 
while, to take care of while he was gone. And when he came back, one of them did not do what was appropriate and was punished for that. So being good stewards is, stewards is very important. Paul further shares that these people that do not steward well, in verses 6 and 7, shares more about these guys. And they have departed, in verse 6 and 7, they have departed from the love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now this, this is from verse 5, which I know I skipped, but we'll get back to that in a minute. And they would rather talk and dispute about things that don't matter. They also want to teach, but they don't understand what they are teaching. They want to teach the scripture, but have not read and studied it on their own or learned from other teachers. They are also very sure what they think is true and right and are very confident of that, rather than searching the scriptures to find real truth. So how do we know true doctrine, which are the principles or truths taught by Christ and his apostles? I think that the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, 10 through 12 are excellent examples. They received the word as a body of believers, and then they went and they opened the scriptures themselves and studied and discussed and searched some more. They knew Psalms 119.105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. Psalms 119.160, the entirety of your word is truth and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. And then Jesus says in John 8, 31 and 32, if you abide in my word, you are my true disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We must be in God's word to know truth and avoid false doctrine. Paul is telling Timothy to confront these people that are starting to teach false doctrines. As we study 1 Timothy, Paul will point out where these false doctrines where this false doctrine is coming from and give further guidance on, on what is right. Further, he will instruct Timothy on how the church should operate so it's harder for false teachers to creep into the church. So what is Paul's goal or aim of Timothy confronting these people? We see it in verse 5. We'll go back to verse 5. And it says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So this, we see, see that it's love. This is an unconditional love. So out of love, Timothy needs to take care of these churches and the issues that they have. This love can only come from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. To love, a pure heart is needed. That's easy, right? How about if I detail what a pure heart is? It is a physical, mental, and spiritual life that is free from corrupt desires, sin, and guilt. I can't do that. The only way for me to have a pure heart is through Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And according to Acts 15.9, God cleansed hearts by faith. Because of Christ, I can be righteous before God. I can have a pure heart. To love, a good conscience is needed. Not only does God cleanse our hearts, we are reconciled to him. Romans 5.10 
For if we were, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We do not need to be guilty before God. To love a sincere faith is needed. This faith is a faith without hypocrisy. It is an honest faith. In this case, faith is complete and is a complete trust and confidence in God. Hebrews 11, 1 through 3 says this about faith. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that were visible. So ultimately, all the instruction and teaching ends in love. That is why Timothy is doing what he's doing, a demonstration of love to the church. 1 Corinthians 13.13 13 says, So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. If you're interested in more information about our church or knowing the peace that Jesus gives, visit our website at lifeattheridge.church.